The diagnosis came before the launch of the first edition of the TV show Kaun Banega Karodpati, the Indian version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Wealth or caste cannot protect anyone from the miseries that are inflicted upon the inner cities. Tuberculosis is no longer a disease only of the poor or an abstract threat from history. In India, where the rich and the poor live less than a sneeze away, their destinies hopelessly intermingled, it is the daily business of life. Welcome to Dialogues. I'm Gary Aslanian. This is a special series of the Global Health Matters podcast. In this series, I'll be blowing open some of the echo chambers that exist in global health. To help me in this quest, I've invited thoughtful and inquisitive individuals from different walks of life. Each of them has explored and written about global health issues from different disciplinary perspectives. I hope this dialogue series will give you, the listeners, an opportunity and space to step out of your daily routine and contemplate global health issues through a different lens. So let's get started. For our second Dialogues episode, I'm joined by Vidya Krishna. Vidya is a health journalist and author based in Goa, India. Vidya invested a significant amount of her writing career investigating and documenting the impact of tuberculosis on Indians of all walks of life. In her book, The Phantom Plague, How Tuberculosis Shaped History, she weaves together a multitude of narratives over time, starting in 19th century New York to modern-day Mumbai. She explores questions about the interplay of race and caste in policies that influence the spread and control of tuberculosis in our day and age. Hi, Vidya. How are you? Very well, Gary. Thank you for having me. Where do I find you today, Vidya? I'm in, I'm in Goa. I'm in Goa in India. Great. Welcome to the show, Vidya. I wanted to start by asking what really motivated you and inspired you as a journalist to investigate interlinkages of science and society. Um, I, I grew up in uh, Bhopal, which is a city in central India. And I grew up right after uh, Bhopal was the center of a the world's largest industrial disaster in 1984 when a pesticide factory leaked uh, an intermediary substance and it poisoned and killed half the city uh, from cyanide poisoning. And there was a long court battle. At the end of it, uh, no one apologized and no one was held accountable and no one actually was uh, really rehabilitated. And... uh, uh, everything about my journalism uh, I have learned is from that one single epic story, which includes all, it includes law and justice and politics and advocacy uh, and all playing out in a small town. And that was the backdrop against uh, what I grew up and everything I write about, which is 
I be, I don't think it's about science or medical history or race or politics. It's actually about the interplay of these things. And the I I believe the only place these things tangibly come together is in literature, where uh, uh, you know, uh, as as a writer, I simply just have to believe that uh, nothing can beat a good story. Vidya, I'm curious: is tuberculosis only a professional interest, or um, you've had a more personal encounter with the disease? I mean, if you mean that if I or someone in my life has had tuberculosis, no, not my immediate family. But is this personal? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you uh, you don't spend eight years on a story without it getting uh, personal. And uh, I I also live in a country. I mean, one is I've while I was reporting on this book, I've lost a lot of friends to this disease. Uh, but uh, I also live in a country where there is so much of tuberculosis and yet somehow people are just blind to it. And uh, uh, this this book, uh, when, when I started writing the book, it wasn't commissioned. I didn't have a publisher. I simply had to write because I saw so much of it and uh, I was working for a newspaper at that point, and it just doesn't do justice after a while to write 300, 600-word stories about something uh, this huge in scale. And at some point, I just realized I was essentially colonized by these stories, uh, and I tried to not write this book for a long time, but then I, I could not stop thinking about it, and I do believe that... Uh, stories uh, cull writers out of people and that's what happened with me hmm, interesting and you take readers in your book through a trip or a, a journey which starts in the past and and you highlight how history has shaped tb and tuberculosis why did you feel the historical perspective is valuable and how could it challenge our understanding and inform our actions in combating TB today? Um, I personally think historical perspective is always valuable, but it's particularly valuable when, you know, we are going through these mega events like plagues and famines and wars because people tend to search, uh, you know, very desperately for answers to make sense of uh, things that can't be made sense of, uh, essentially. I spent a lot of time reading history at that point, and I'd say all of it um, benefited from my reading of history, all of my reporting, uh, because essentially we as societies and human beings are just predictable creatures. And uh, about how can history help in combating uh, TB, uh, TB was and has gone back to being the number one infectious disease killer. Uh, and every plague before this one has taught us the same thing, that uh, no one will be safe until every last one of us is. I feel like a stuck record saying this over and over again uh, everywhere I speak. But uh, it was quite... It was quite... Uh, surreal to you know uh, see the science denialism and the the racism and uh casteism in my country all of it that i had read about the xenophobia all of it just came to life in the past three years if we don't uh, act collectively because infectious diseases 
more than anything else uh, it's about collective destiny if we are greedy and if we think in these myopic ways i don't see any way we will prevail over these pathogens despite all the fruits of modern medicine interesting you mentioned that because in this season we've uh, recorded a couple of uh, specific history matters episodes and our audience really loved those episodes so important to know history as you say it was really interesting for me to uh, learn from the book about the influence of the housing policies in mumbai on the spread of uh, tuberculosis uh, let's hear more about this from your book that aerial shot of the slum clusters is now known as the trigger photo within dfy it was the first time the dfy staff could visualize the scale of the health crisis the photograph resembles a densely stacked honeycomb there are 59 rooftops tiny squares and red arrows coming out of them against each arrow dfy researchers have put a number to reflect how many tb patients live in each building the markings get denser more clustered on the lower floors one building in particular stands out building number 10 of the np compound researchers had found 51 drug resistant tb patients in one building in one of mumbai's sprawling ghettos an exceptional find even for a country like india it was the equivalent of finding 51 people suffering from a rare cancer all neighbors at least one member of every family living inside building number 10 had drug resistance responding to the antibiotics poverty is the disease tb is the symptom the global fight against tb will be won or more likely lost in india because a century of bad housing policy decisions has meant that mumbai's rich residents live in their gated luxury archipelago of enclaves high in the sky while keeping the poor residents of mumbai in serving distance as their cooks and drivers and security guards and lift operators together but separated more than ever for the bacteria this is a great opportunity to thrive what do you think is the learning from the experience in mumbai that could benefit other cities uh, to not make the same mistake Uh, thank you for that question um what's what's happening in mumbai today was happening in new york uh in the 20th century uh the industrial revolution led to the seven sense housing which led which which made the city you know the ghetto was a petri dish for tuberculosis and globalization simply outsourced these dirty jobs to dingy places far away to essentially countries like mine so why mumbai is where we see this happening is mumbai is the financial engine of india but what's happening in mumbai is just a microcosm of what's happening in every big mega city of the world uh, we are connected every part of the world is connected to every other corner with airports and we all have to deal with this question uh, are are the poor who live amongst us especially in big cities the refugees uh the workers who migrate from smaller towns to bigger ones uh, are they meant to live in uh, subhuman condition and what what does it mean for the society collectively if you force a certain section of your society to live in these subpar conditions 
when I was reporting in Mumbai, I met this uh, uh, doctor who was the medical superintendent of Suri Hospital, which he jokes that if tuberculosis was a religion, Suri would be Mecca. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the largest uh, tuberculosis hospital in Asia. And uh, I now know from living in Mumbai, while reporting the book, I lived there and I lived in a posh neighborhood in Mumbai. But I'll head out to the ghettos report and come back to my safe distance. But then this is increasingly more and more fragile. And what the housing crisis in Mumbai teaches me essentially is this is this is not a coincidence. All of this is willful neglect. We live in congested cities, but we are so segregated by race and caste and you know class. And pathogens don't respect these boundaries and we just have to stop thinking if we are to combat them, we have to change how we think about them as well. And a lot will begin with uh, making sure that we have better housing for poor people. But unfortunately, in my country, we have a situation where uh, Bollywood romanticizes this living in slums. And... Uh, you know, we live in a society that's just blind to the pain that's just inflicted in different neighborhoods. Bollywood romanticizes living in slums. This is the first time I've ever heard well, of this. Uh, How does oh, that well, happen? I, you know, Slumdog Millionaire, which won the Oscar, right. was very famously based in uh, the larger in Dharavi, which is the biggest slum in uh -huh, Asia. Uh-huh. And also, you know, we have uh, in Bombay, if you're a tourist, they take you on a Dharavi tour. Like as a tourist, you can just go how and see, see yeah. how poor people live. And everything about it is just so ugly and exploitative and so blind to the, you know, living conditions. Uh, hmm. Vidya, interwoven in your book are the stories of several patients who you have encountered and you mentioned how you visited and talked to them. Why, in your opinion, is so paramount to anchor our efforts to eliminate tuberculosis within these stories? Again, thank you for that question. I think one of the reasons why this book has done well uh, is because I'm not a student of medicine. Uh, so I did not approach this biography of a bacteria from a medical point of view. So I did not see these people as patients. I saw them as people, you know, with dreams and families and mortgages and dogs and who just got caught in this very ugly turn of events in which they just have no control. And why is it paramount? Uh, I mean, when you see the patient and not the person, what is implicit in that, and I see a lot of that happening in India, is that you see the person as a disease carrier. And um, I was in the US when the Trump administration was in charge. And with infectious diseases, if you don't see the patients as people, that's the slippery slope we uh, get to. And I actually believe in seeing past this infection and looking at the person's life is important because uh, more than anything else, it requires compassion. And I believe compassion is an absolute necessity in global health. And it's also the most uh, missing component in our TV policy. And I don't here mean compassion uh, as, as an indulgence or as a moral stand. I literally mean it uh, as an urgent need 
to look at a policy that is, uh, uh, you know, uh, that addresses infectious diseases, especially in developing nations. Because if we don't very carefully incorporate compassion into a policy, we end up with something like DOTS. Uh, DOTS was just from the very beginning unkind to patients. It was, you know, to expect a patient to turn up at a DOTS clinic day after day after day, even if they get fired from their jobs, then they get uh, visibly, you know, if you're standing in front of the building, you are visibly a TB patient, so you get ostracized. And this lack of thought essentially, of course, it's at a philosophical and profound level, great to be compassionate, but the way I see it, it makes the policies inefficient. Is the biggest proof that the DOTS policy failed. Hmm. So another fascinating observation you made in your uh, book is the tension between accessibility of antibiotics and also the inequity that can arise if access is limited. Could you tell us more about this situation in India? I think, Gary, uh, tension is a very charitable word. I would not use the word tension here. It's just so morally fraught to deny someone medicine for someone in the future. And there is just no way you can say this without answering the question. Every time I've met an Indian doctor who says this to me, I've asked them, give me a visual of what does the patient in the future look like? Is it a rich upper caste Hindu Brahmin man or woman uh, in my country, but essentially at a global scale, why we want to save antibiotics is when drug-resistant tuberculosis reaches uh, Seattle and Geneva and places like those, and you want to save the medicine for uh, rich white people or upper caste Hindus in my country. And uh, it's it's... Uh, there is just no way that we can talk about this without addressing the fact that in every system, the rich will get the treatment. It's the poor, it's the lower caste people or people belonging to uh, different races who who will be left behind. And I personally find that abominable. And Vidya, what do you think should be done about this? I mean, almost immediately for TB, I will say that we have to, we we just simply have to not enforce patent monopolies. It's a global health emergency of a scale. Everything that happened in COVID has been happening for decades with TB. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, in India, the entire TB program got COVIDized down to the helpline of the ministry. And infectious respiratory diseases uh, don't simply go away. Uh, so the first thing we need to do is look at how technology is transferred because vaccines and drugs, first and foremost, mm. the, it's, it's technology. It's somebody's intellectual property. And I feel like uh, TB elimination cannot, will not be achieved if uh, uh, the medicines, the latest, most humane therapy is logged in a patent monopoly. And again, the most frustrating part of this is that all of uh, the new therapies in tuberculosis actually came out of a genuine public um, collaboration. Uh, Universities put in money, philanthropies put in money, a bunch of uh, the late stage uh, clinical trials on bedaquiline were done in India and South Africa. So patients also pitched in. And it's really unfair that uh, you use patients for research 
but then when it's time to uh, and and all of these drugs came out of industrial scale subsidies uh, to pharmaceutical companies and now they're in patent monopolies so that's that's the most urgent thing i'd say Vidya, you make a statement, there is no public in public health any longer. Could you expand on this? Statement? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there, I genuinely believe there's no public in public health. There is little health either. There is a lot of cash. <laughs> uh, yesterday, I was at a conference where uh, I learned that uh, during the pandemic, uh, you know, in India, there's this reputation that there are a lot of tech billionaires in India. Mm. But uh, because of the pandemic, we now have more pharma billionaires than tech billionaires. We minted out a new billionaire every nine and a half days during the pandemic. And we, uh, this, is, this is not just true for India, but of course it's true for India. That is true for the rest of the world as well. If there was public in public health, there is just no way that vaccines that have been um, uh, brought to market with invest heavy investments from publicly funded universities and taxpayers will just you know be handed to pharmaceutical companies uh, just for a song. We let uh, millions of people die from a preventable uh, vaccine curable disease, and that really should make us question everything about this structure that uh, we are trying to defend. It, it's a very cruel thing to have medicines and not share it. And I don't know how to explain it other than, you know, just say that there is neither public nor health and it just profits. Hmm. You wrote your book before the actual pandemic. And yet, as we just talked about, we saw history repeated itself in some of the aspects what are the two lessons from your exploration, if taken on board, could change the outcome of future pandemic? Uh, I know we are negotiating a pandemic treaty now, which also looks very, I mean, the dice just seems loaded against uh, uh, post-colonial, very fragile nations. And uh, uh, the two lessons that... Hmm. The first and the most obvious one is that we had to decenter manufacturing because uh, our supply chains are just too broken. Uh, every continent should okay. be able to manufacture for itself and supply itself. Um, uh, and, and intellectual property cannot be a hurdle for it. The pandemic was a perfect time for countries to issue compulsory licenses. Uh, like the U.S. government did for anthrax soon after the for for soon after the anthrax attacks after 9/11, so rich countries actually do get to use the flexibilities in the law. It's uh, the poor nations, it's the post-colonial nations that are not allowed to. And the second lesson, I this is my uh, this is my personal pet. Uh, about I don't understand why we think we can fund global health through philanthropy. We cannot. We simply just cannot. Uh, it's not a coincidence that uh, uh, you know a global health uh, order, which is entirely managed by uh, very few foundations to fund it, uh, then uh, you know we result in uh, in global emergencies. Then we look at billionaires for solutions because we've not created systems in peacetime 
So in wartime, we look at uh, saviors to come and save us. And also the thing about uh, casting yourself as a savior is you, you, you are expected to do some saving when a crisis hits. Organized philanthropists are also equally responsible for getting us in this position because uh, uh, they have poured in so much money over the years in states like Uttar Pradesh in India, where during the second wave, bodies were floating in our rivers because people had by then run out of space in the graveyards and they were just putting... Hindus were pushing bodies in Ganga, Ganges, which is our mythical river, which Hindus believe will give you nirvana, eternal salvation. So if you can't give them a, you know, pyre at the end, you push these bodies in the mythical rivers. And that's why I say uh, in India, we had a 14th century plague. Sure, the government is responsible. In every country where organized philanthropy is a pillar to make healthcare possible, it's not feasible. It's very dangerous. So just I'm clear, what was the second lesson? Uh, the here? second lesson simply was to fund our own health as a, you know, as a taxpayer funded, you know, no philanthropic involvement in it. It's just my business with my government. I understand. Vidya, in our search for book authors from low and income countries, we have not found many. Why do you think it's so important for journalists or writers like yourself to share the stories of their own people like you have done in this book? I, I'm a writer, so I'm biased towards uh, stories. I feel like every story, every story is important uh, to give us a a comprehensive picture of this mosaic uh, that we take as a global health order, which actually is very overrepresented from very limited parts of the world. Why it's important for every story to be recorded, but more than every story, the stories of the lowest common denominators. Uh, it's important. Again, I'm a writer. I believe having a granular information uh, from all perspectives actually is important to make us compassionate, uh, you know, for, make room for each other's stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Finally, um, TB still remains with us and there is still a lot of work to be done with tuberculosis. But uh, where you've seen any pockets of hope and promise of progress? Uh, yes, yes. I actually do remain uh, very optimistic at this point. One of the sheer, you know, sparkles in, in this process is the uh, patient networks that have come together and the advocacy with, you know, they have led from the front uh, two patients, Nandita Venkateshan and uh, uh, Fumeza from South Africa challenged successfully uh, Johnson & Johnson's patent on Badakulin. And uh, it's uh, so heartwarming to see these kind of changes, uh, people finding each other, learning each other's story, finding strength in each other's stories. And uh, the other silver lining because of the pandemic is there is now more conversation about infectious diseases, uh, more than more than I uh, seen in the seven eight years I was reporting on this book before the pandemic. And most of all, there is uh, in countries like India there has been significant expansion of molecular testing. Um, 
all of this actually gives us a strong network to build on to end or to at least try to meet the targets we've set ourselves uh, to eliminate tb i do believe mm. we have all the tools to do it uh, it's just a question of whether we are going to prioritize doing what the right thing is to do thank you vidya for joining me today and sharing your reflections and your work it was a great conversation thank you it was really nice to meet you vidya explores tuberculosis through a societal lens as an indian living in one of the countries with the highest incidence of tuberculosis in the world i take away from my conversation with vidya a new appreciation for a complex range of factors that influence this disease something we all think we know but we don't always account for when thinking of how to tackle this age old public health issue from housing policies to decisions on patent rights achieving progress in combating tuberculosis is no easy task Vidya's conversation also reminds us of the ongoing colonial remnants and commercial interests that have a direct influence on the achievement of health equity. A positive development from earlier this year is the adoption of a historic declaration by member states at the 78th United Nations General Assembly. The declaration gives momentum to ending tuberculosis by 2030. and providing life-saving treatment to 45 million people. Let's hear from one of our listeners. Thanks to Gary and the TBR for producing excellent podcast. I have liked in particularly the last one about the stigma, the fear and the inequalities and the lack of knowledge that relates to Chagas disease in your talk with Daisy Hernandez. and this is a very good way of bringing humanities to global health i wanted to also call my attention for a podcast about climate change and health that promotes health arguments for climate action and the health co-benefits of mitigation because we need to ensure that there is evidence for a health center response to climate change in order to mobilize resources and financing for action Thank you Maria Teresa for your recommendation and for listening to the dialogue. In season 1 we had an episode on climate change but I agree there is so much more we can discuss. To learn more about our dialogue series and the content of this episode visit the episode webpage where you will find additional readings, show notes and translations. Don't forget to get in touch with us via social media, email, or by sharing a voice message with your reflections on this episode. Global Health Matters is produced by TDR, a research program based at the World Health Organization. Gary Aslanian is the host and the executive producer. Lindy Van Nieker and Obadiah George are content and technical producers. Priya Joy is the curator of the dialogue series. The podcast editing, communication, dissemination, web and social media designs are made possible through the work of Maki Kitamura, Chris Coase, Elisabetta Desi, Isabella Suderdayao and Chembe Collaborative. 
The goal of Global Health Matters is to produce a forum for sharing perspectives on key issues affecting global health. Send us your comments and suggestions by email or voice message to tdrpod at who.int and be sure to download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.